was mine. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's pray for Matt. Thank you, Father, for Matt. Thank you for this message that you've put on his heart. Thank you for who you are and how you've revealed yourself to him. And thank you that he's taken the time to bring that to us today. Open our hearts, open our ears, and help us to receive what he has to say. We look forward to hearing from you, Father. Amen. Amen. Good morning. <coughs> I am not very well. So if this is any good, it's all God, um, which is exciting. And uh, so we're going to talk a little bit more about Jesus, about knowing Jesus. As I kind of look back over my journey of walking with Jesus, of being a follower of Jesus, particularly the last few years, and I've been following Jesus and walking with him for around 25 years, something like that, <clears throat> it's always a journey. There's always something new to discover. There's always something new to grasp and to get. And I'd say that one of the things that I've noticed in my own journey over the last few years is that actually... My journey has become more about following Jesus than it has perhaps about just being a Christian. I believe that Jesus has kind of stepped even more central into my faith, my Christian faith. Jesus has become more central than he ever was before. And the more I think about him and the more I look upon him, the more in love with him I become the more amazed I am at who he is and the gods that he reveals to us. It says in the Bible that he is the image of the invisible God. We cannot see God. But Jesus himself said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So in him, we see almost everything we need to know about God. But we're not called simply to worship him, although we've done that very well this morning. We've sung our hearts out to the king of all kings, the resurrected king who has conquered the grave. We've sung to him and we have worshipped him and we have told him that we love him. But it can't stop there. If it's just about saying, Jesus, I love you, then we are not being true to the call that he places on all of our lives. I just want to share a few verses with you from the Bible that just really kind of make that point. You know, it says in a letter that was written by a guy called John, who was one of Jesus' closest friends. You find it in the Bible, 1 John 2, 6. And it says this, it says, Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. That's quite challenging as we will discover as we unpack this Knowing Jesus series. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. Another guy called Paul who started the early church. Well, I didn't start it. He took it from Jerusalem. He took it basically beyond Jerusalem. He was really one of the pioneers. He said this at the beginning of a letter to a church in Galatia, a book called Galatians in the Bible. He said, imitate God. Imitate God in everything you do. Imitate God in everything you do. So we have John saying that those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. We read in this book called Colossians that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. 
Paul says, imitate God in everything you do. So how do you imitate God? Well, you look at Jesus and you see how he lived, and then you seek to live as Jesus lived. And then Paul wrote another letter to a book in Rome, which is called Romans. And this is from the message version, which is a kind of a slightly kind of rewritten version of the Bible, generally considered to be very faithful to the text. It says in Romans 8.29, it says, He, that is God, he decided from the outset to shape the lives of those who love him, which is us, or it may not be you, but if you're thinking of falling in love with Jesus, then this is all part of what's involved. To shape the lives of those who love him along the same lines as the life of his son. The more standard kind of uh, version of the Bible says he has predestined us to be conformed to the likeness of his son. So we're to live like Jesus, we're to imitate God, and we are to be conformed to his likeness or have our lives shaped to be like the life of his son. And that's why we're doing this Knowing Jesus series. We're doing it so that we've got a really good idea of how we should be living as his followers. So that we know him better, we know him more deeply, so that actually as we live our lives out, as we live our lives out, it looks more and more like Jesus. Now I've got a smaller, small example for you to, to show. Now I do apologize for any of you who were part of the Light Church 10 years ago, you might have seen this before if you turned up on that particular Sunday, okay? Which is probably about two of you. Um, I'd like to invite my beautiful assist assistant to the stage. <clears throat> okay, so I took a picture of Jesus. Can I have the original Jesus? I, I, I didn't take a picture of Jesus, okay? I'm not claiming that particular miraculous thing. And we don't know actually what Jesus looked like, but there's something about, um, yeah, Jim Calviezel, or however you pronounce his surname, in The Passion of the Christ, that for me, yeah. Anyway, can we have the, um, so there we go. Here's, here's, here's a picture. So, original picture of Jesus. Not original. Okay, it's not original. Okay. I went to this church, this guy reckoned he had pictures of Jesus. Then I took a photocopy of Jesus. Hold it up nice and high, Josie. Then I took a photocopy of Jesus, and it still looks quite like Jesus. Then I took another photocopy, but I photocopied the photocopy, okay? Then I photocopied the photocopy. Again, what did I do? Oh, well done, Calvin, listening listening, and I kept going until eventually it doesn't look, it looks more like an Andy Warhol painting, to be honest, or something like that. It doesn't look a great deal like Jesus. One of the biggest challenges for the Christian church is not to be seeking to conform ourselves to the likeness of other Christians around us is not just to be looking to see how do we live life by, oh, how is Richard living his life, or how is Lyndon living his life, or how is Nick living his life, but it's to actually say, no, I don't want to be a copy of a copy 
of a copy, because the most, the, the best, and, it's, and yeah, it looks good, and to be honest, we're only ever going to get so good. The best you'll ever be able to do is to be a copy of the original. And this is why we're doing Knowing Jesus as a series, so we can be a copy of the original, not of a copy of a copy of a copy and end up looking like this. Okay, I'm going to put this up over here, Josie, so if you could just... Yes, ready-made blue tack. And for those of you that can't see from the front, this is basically the photocopy and the copy. And those of you that are listening online, um, hi, Mum. <laughs> Hope you're feeling better. And um, <laughs> Mum's not too well either. I think she gave this to me in the first place. But I'm not blaming her, okay? You know. I am slightly. <clears throat> now, I want to talk to you about an area of life, an area of Jesus that... I really struggle to be a copy of. And I share it with you, because it may be that you also struggle to be a copy of Jesus in this way. And we're going to hear lots about Jesus. And there'll be some things that will hit us in different ways. I want to talk to you about scandalous Jesus. I want to talk to you about scandalous Jesus. I want to talk to you about a man who was God and yet whose reputation would probably mean that many of us wouldn't even allow him into this church. Apart from the fact we're a fairly inclusive, accepting church. But there'd be many a church where he would not be accepted because of his scandalous reputation. I believe that actually if we kind of really get under the skin of the Bible text and the context of what is going on there. Oh, thank you. If you could save that till later, that'd be great. Um, I believe we would even struggle to believe that this man who was the image of the invisible God is truly a representation of the perfection of the one who made all things. You know, there is there's a there's a kind of an element of theology that says that that God is so holy that God cannot be in the presence of sin. Who's heard that before? Yeah? Probably many of us agree with it. I don't agree with it. Because I believe that Jesus was God. And I believe that when God came to earth, he was not repelled from sin. He was drawn towards it. He was drawn towards it. I believe our God, partly because of his great holiness, is drawn towards it because his holiness does something to the sin that he sees in all of us. Jesus came to show us what the Father was like. Jesus came to show us what God is like. The Son of Man, it says in Matthew's Gospel, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. That's not too unusual. <laughs> he came eating and drinking, and they said about him, here is a glutton and a drunkard, 
That's what they said about Jesus. That is what they said about Jesus. Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That is who Jesus... Why did they say that? Because he hung out with gluttons and he hung out with drunkards. There's no biblical evidence to suggest that he ever himself was gluttonous or that he himself ever got drunk, but that was where he was at. That was where you would find him. With the gluttons, with the drunkards, with the tax collectors, and with the sinners. Now this word sinner, some of you, maybe it's the first time you've been to church in years, you go, oh man, they're at it again, they're on about sin. Um, have we got any sinners in the room? Would you like to raise your hands? Now actually, most of you aren't. You sin from time to time. But actually, when it says sinner here, it doesn't mean probably most of you. It means something a lot, lot worse than what you get up to. Okay? It really does. <clears throat> when we see this term sinners, if I was to say, is anybody here involved in people trafficking? Put your hands in no, don't. <laughs> We're at accepting church, but... Anybody been involved in prostitution recently? Again, don't put your hand up. You don't want to shame anybody. But I'll tell you what, if you have, you're extremely welcome. You are so welcome. Anybody been involved in child abuse recently? When they said that Jesus hung out with tax collectors and sinners... The same disgust that you just had in your heart to think there might be even somebody sat here who's been involved in child abuse. That's pretty much as low as it got. And Jesus, Jesus, he went and hung out with people like this. When it says that he's a friend of sinners... This isn't just that he's got like a kind of a, a cool little gang who kind of like go and drink a bit too much on a Saturday night, you know, come and watch some stuff they shouldn't be watching and, you know, pop a few pills, you know, cheeky little sinners. These are people who everyone thought were the scum of the earth. He is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Rejects, outcasts, and he loved them to bits. He bestowed honor and dignity upon them. I'm going to give you three moments where he bestowed honor and dignity on these terrible, terrible sinners. The first is in Matthew's gospel. It's the calling of Matthew as a disciple. It says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. <laughs> You're joking. Yeah? Don't know what you want to think of. Yeah, the drug dealers, the benefit cheats, whoever, the tax collectors, hated scum of the earth. 
follow me. Follow me. Okay? That doesn't mean, kind of like, I'm walking over there, follow me. That means, thanks, Richard. Um, give you that fiver later, yeah? Um, when he said, follow me, he basically said, come and be my disciple. Follow me. <laughs> and Matthew, who had been rejected by all of society, he got up and he followed him. Okay, if you're thinking about following Jesus today, if you're thinking, is this Christian stuff for me? He calls you, follow me. It doesn't just mean kind of become a bit of a churchgoer. No, come and learn from me about how you should live your life. Follow me. Matthew got up, he followed him. Whilst Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. You do not understand how uncomfortable his disciples would have been in that moment. They'd be like, Jesus, seriously, Jesus, you don't, is this right? We're supposed to be following God. We're surrounded by, she's a prostitute. How on earth she's a prostitute? We, we, seriously? Is this? No, 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 it can't, it, it, it can't be. The Pharisees saw this. You've got to remember the Pharisees are people mostly like you and me. Their religion is strong. Their morality is high. They looked on. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, listen, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. By the way, that term, go and learn, basically means you forgot to go to school, mate. Okay? We don't get that because this is, this, that was highly rude and offensive to the Pharisees. Go and learn. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Different talk. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This would have been scandalous. Jesus was eating with the people that everybody else avoided. Jesus was eating with the people who everybody else thought were the scum of the earth. Everyone would have been talking about it. He calls himself a religious teacher. He calls himself a rabbi. You should see who he's eating with. We shouldn't pay any attention to him. That was Jesus' reputation. He was guilty by association because he associated with the guilty. Wish I'd made that up, but I read it somewhere. <sighs> he bestowed dignity and honor on Matthew, on Matthew's tax collector friends. His friends were only tax collectors because you didn't have any other friends when you were a tax collector. He bestowed it on the women that turned up and ate with them. We see it. We see him bestowing dignity and honor. This is a story that if you have been around church and been following Jesus for a while, you're very familiar with. But for those of you that haven't been, he meets a woman at a well in John chapter 4. And there's something that I've never spotted here before that maybe you have, but I haven't. That's a little bit of a punchline. It says here, it says, Jacob's well was there. Jesus, tired from his journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Again, if you've ever heard that kind of said, but you don't get water at noon because it's boiling hot. So a Samaritan woman came to, to draw water. Uh, Samaritans were hated by the Jewish people. Jesus should, by all rights, hate this woman. But Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? 
Basically, she's like, you should not be talking to me, yeah? In your eyes, I'm scum of the earth. Not only am I Samaritan, and you hate that, but I'm a woman, and women were totally and utterly second-class, but more like third-class citizens back in that day. So she knew he shouldn't be talking to her. The conversation goes on. I'm just pulling bits out of the conversation. He says to her, go call your husband and come back. She says, I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, yeah, you're right when you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. In other words, this was the woman who worked her way through pretty much every man in the village and is currently probably hated, loathed, despised by all the other women because it sounds like she probably worked her way and dragged their husbands away one after another after another. This was, yeah, she was dis dis disgraced. She was despised. That's why she was collecting water in the middle of the day because if she turned up at 8 o'clock in the morning like everybody else, she just had, yeah, she'd have been called this despicable names, she'd have been treated with disgrace and disgust. And so to avoid the shame, she went at noon. Jesus should not have spoken to this woman. He should not have welcomed her. But what does he do? What does he do? Anybody have a little bit of a conversation about where you worship God and where we worship God and all of that, and it's, 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 it's great. And the woman said, because they got on to talking about who the Messiah is. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared. And this is what's quite stunning. This is the first time Jesus ever reveals his Messiahhood. This is the first time Jesus ever reveals that he is come to save all humanity. And who does he tell? Who does he tell? He tells a woman who's completely and utterly disgraced. He says, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. <laughs> he tells us to go back into town and tell everyone. It's just like, seriously? <laughs> you want me to go there and tell all of them that I've met the the Messiah, the Holy One, none of them are going to believe me. She, 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 she does. She goes and she does it. Guilty by association because he associated with the guilty. So, how are we doing? Are we a copy of the original? Or are we a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy? outrageous, scandalous to even be talking to her. So when I said scandalous Jesus at the beginning of the thing, some of you went, <sighs> if you don't see the scandal, you're not reading it properly. If you don't see how outrageous this was, you're not understanding who our Jesus truly is. In Luke's gospel, one of the Pharisees, one of the religious people, asked Jesus to eat with him. And so Jesus went into the Pharisee's house. I've noticed a little pattern, actually. Jesus asks sinners and tax collectors if he can go and eat with them. 
Pharisees, the religious people, asked Jesus if he can come and eat with them. The Pharisee asked him. Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and he sat at the table. A sinful woman, okay? Once again, this is not just you luck with your, you know, unless you are here and you are in the midst of something like prostitution or something, in which case, once again, I'm so glad you're here because Jesus would want you here. A sinful woman. In other words, she is a full-time sinner and she gets paid for it. She learned he was eating at the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar, a big jar of perfume. She took all the money that she had from selling this trick and that. Money from, prosti- money from prostitution to be used in worship of a savior. Surely not, Jesus. Surely not. Yeah, I mean, what? She stood behind Jesus at his feet. She cried, overwhelmed by the weight of her sin. As the tears flowed, she actually used them somehow to wash his feet. His feet would have been dirty. She took her long hair, which was another sign that she was in business. And she used her hair. She washed his feet and she kissed them time after time. She got the perfume and she rubbed it into Jesus' feet. Scandalous. 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 Can you imagine someone walking in here? They've been on the streets all night. They kneel at the front. They cry their heart out in praise to Jesus. And they take all their earnings from the last week and they stick it in the offering. I'm not sure how we'd all feel about that. Thankfully, we're quite a Jesus church. So I think most of us would go, wow. The Pharisees were just like, you know, if Jesus were a prophet, he would know that the woman touching him is a sinner. Jesus said to the Pharisee, Simon, I've got something to say to you. If you want to know what he said, look it up, Luke 7, verse 40. He was guilty by association because he associated with the guilty. This is the king, this is the savior who had Rahab the prostitute in his bloodline, his great, 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 granny. Probably a few more greats in there. This is the king who was the descendant of another murdering, adultering, is that a word? Yeah, king, who wrote most of the book of Psalms. This is the king who, when he was resurrected, the first person he showed himself to was a woman with a notorious past who'd had demons driven out of her, and many people believe she lived an immoral, adulterous life, possibly prostitution, as well. When you think about the term Christian, what do you think? And who do you think? Back in the kind of 80s and 90s, there was a group in America 
that names themselves the moral majority, that try to present a perfect front of this is what perfect Christianity looks like. It is about getting all of your lifestyle in line. And by the way, don't get me wrong, of course Jesus wants you to leave behind everything that harms those around you and your relationship with God. But Jesus has got no time for moral majorities. He goes for the immoral majority. That is where the holy God chooses to make his dwelling. It's very easy to think that Jesus, because we think about resurrected Jesus, we think about him through the image of all the Christians that we have met, which isn't a very good idea generally. We think of this wonderful reputation, this wonderful son of God who walked the earth, who did good. We don't think of a savior who comes from, you know, well, accused of being an illegitimate child. We know who his father was. He was accused of being a deceiver. He was accused of being mentally ill. He was accused of being demon-possessed. He was accused of being the devil himself. He was accused of being a blasphemer, someone who said the wrong things about God. He was accused of being a lawbreaker. He was accused of being a false prophet. He was accused of being a glutton. And he was accused of being a drunkard. I put it to you that most of us would write Jesus off as a Christian. I put it to you that this savior that we serve is so much more edgy than most Christians you have ever, ever met. Totally misunderstood by religious people. And I put it to you that he probably still is today, which is why we're having a series where we try and get under the skin and understand who was this man who was God, who walked. So what do you do with this? What do you do with this light church? What do I do with this? I'll tell you what, I'm not going to give you what step one, step two, step three, step four. I don't want to encourage you to go out there and get a really bad reputation by hanging around with all the wrong people. But some of you, your reputation is a bit too squeaky clean, really. Genuinely, to be a copy of the original. I know at times it's right to step away from those who are making really big mistakes in their lives, especially if you're a new Christian, because they can maybe pull you back in and drag you back in. All the parents of teenagers are thinking, oh, Matt, what are you doing? <laughs> Been encouraging our kids to hang out with the right people, not the wrong people. I'm just helping you understand Jesus a little bit better. I can't tell you what to do with that. I can encourage you to pray. I can encourage you to follow his spirit. I can provoke you. Because the truth is, if we are not provoked when we read 
the life and story of Jesus. We haven't read it properly. Look intently at Jesus. Really get him. Do your best to understand him, though you never will truly. And then say, God, I think I've got one final slide. I think I have, if I not? Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. That's where we started. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do. I've stunned you all into silence, rightly so. Let's just wait a moment. Let's just wait a moment. Like I say, I'm not going to tell you what you should do with this. I just want you to know Jesus. Jesus.